About half a million years ago, the size of our brains started to rapidly increase. Why? What sparked this sudden jump in brain size? Amongst the competing theories is the social brain hypothesis, that it was our ever more complex social lives, the need for early humans to live in ever larger social groups and maintain these social connections over larger distances that led directly to the large increases in brain size. This book, Thinking Big, How the Evolution of Social Life Shaped the Human Mind, is the result of seven years of collaborative research between evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar and renowned archaeologists John Gowlett and Clive Gamble. Today, it is my incredibly good fortune to be discussing these ideas with one of the authors, Clive Gamble, Professor of Archaeology at the University of Southampton and President of the Royal Anthropological Institute in London. My name's Craig Barfoot and you're listening to another Pod Academy podcast. Clive, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. You're welcome. First of all, I want to ask you, how did this book come about? I mean, what conversations were you having and what questions were intriguing you and your co-authors that led you to writing this book? Well, from my point of view, the the, the real killer for me, Craig, was that um, uh, here we can look at chimpanzees. They have a brain a third the size of our brains, of yours and my brain. And you can read a book by Jane Goodall or study the works of Franz de Waal uh, looking at captive chimpanzees or, or huge literature which talk about the social life of these uh, great apes. And not just the great apes, also about macaques and baboons. Uh, animals with even smaller brains than chimpanzees. And you read these accounts and they have rich, very elaborate lives. And then you go to the archaeology and you read uh, the Paleolithic archaeology of of, uh, one of our ancestors like Neanderthals who had the brains the same size as ours. Uh, They made stone tools and they hunted and whatever. Uh, and then you read, you come to the bits in the books or the papers about their social lives, and it hardly exists. So it, you had this, for us, it was this strange conundrum, really, uh, that we seem to know more about the social lives of our, of our uh, closest primate co- cousins with tiny little brains and no language and no writing. Uh, and then these uh, very large-brained ancestors, uh, we didn't seem to be wanting to see them as a social animal at all. And that struck us as very odd and something that definitely needed to be investigated. And in the sense of investigating that, I mean, as an archaeologist, you you can't pick up an arrowhead and then tell me that the owner cried gentle tears for the loss of his beloved wife. So how does archaeology go from this tangible fossil record to, to findings about this intangible social structure? Well, that's exactly where um, teaming up with uh, a primatologist, evolutionary psychologist like Robin was the key. Because, you know, you could ask the same question and say, well, how can we understand the social lives of the great apes when they can't tell us what their social lives are? But what we can do is we can 
we can compare and we can contrast. And we use those comparative methods of uh, comparing between species and what they can and can't do. And that starts to give us a basis for understanding. What are we missing as archaeologists? We kind of give up the game before we've even started by saying, well, they haven't got writing and they haven't got pyramids and they haven't got rich burials and all the sorts of things uh, that uh, we can instantly see are artifacts to do with society and to do with uh, uh, social uh, behavior in the social world. But what we'd missed and what we hadn't really concentrated on was, was the basis of those bonds. We'd gone straight to the artifacts, but actually we had to dig a little bit deeper. And that's where looking at the, the primates, uh, the great apes, really helped. And, and saying, well, they do it without artifacts and without language. And they create their society from the bottom up by emotions and by close contact and by lots of interaction where they sort out how things are going to work. Yeah, we'll come back to uh, this idea of creating society from the bottom up in a moment. But first, maybe could we put this time scale that we're talking about into a bit of perspective? I, I mean, seven million years, I mean, that's a really long time. It is a long time. I mean, much of that time, though, we're not dealing with people like ourselves. We're dealing with a long, slow evolutionary process where we go from very small brains to very big brains, where uh, at about two and a half million years ago, so pretty much four or five million years into that history, is when we find the first stone tools, the very first uh, artifacts. And then... uh, when we deal with language, and uh, we think that language is quite early, but on this time scale, it's actually quite late. We think language is about uh, 500,000 years ago. So think of a very long, slow period. It's a, a long marinade uh, as, as the whole recipe of what is a modern human, what is what, you know, someone like you or me, uh, how it all comes together. And it's not until really the very last uh, few seconds of that very long time scale that we start to see the sort of use of the world, the ways that things are made and so on, uh, that we would recognize uh, as something that is very clearly part of the modern world. So it's a very long period of time. Important to your work is the, the social brain hypothesis. I guess for a moment, could you just go into that and explain a little bit for us what that actually is? The social brain hypothesis is actually very simple. It's a very neat hypothesis. It basically says that our social lives drove the development of our brain, that we didn't get a big brain just by kind of thinking about it. Evolution doesn't work like that. And we didn't get a big brain because in, uh, you know, half a million years time, we might be able to invent a digital watch or a, a smartphone or something like that. That's not how evolution works. There's got to be something driving the evolution of the brain. And so the social brain hypothesis just puts that in a nutshell and says it was our social lives that drove this incredible enlargement of the uh, uh, human brain. You've got to put that into perspective as well, that, uh, you know, if we were able, I I don't advise that the listeners do this at home, Craig, but if we were able to take our brains out of our heads and put them on the scales, it it weighs about 2% 
of our body weight. That's our brain. So it's really quite an insignificant uh, organ uh, in the body in terms of weight. And yet, 20% of everything we eat, all the energy we take in, goes into maintaining that brain, feeding the brain, making sure that it's going to be functioning well. Now, think about that for uh, from an evolutionary perspective, that uh, as the brain gets bigger, as it goes from being really very small, a third of what uh, uh, yours or my brain is now, uh, up to the size uh, that we find today, you're increasing the amount of energy that you've got to put into that brain. This is an evolutionary problem. There's got to be a very strong reason, a very strong selection for a larger brain of this of this type. It's not something that's going to happen by chance or something that's going to happen as a result of something else. It's got to be driven by getting advantages back from having a large brain in the first place. And so the social brain hypothesis says, look, the payback uh, for that, it is that by living in larger groups and by having a brain that can start to monitor those larger groups, remember people and remember how to act correctly towards them and so on, you're going to have those larger groups, which is a good response itself to pressure from predators from those large African uh, predators like lions, hyenas, leopards, and so on. You can start to see why human evolution could go in that direction of uh, going for larger brains, because it has a big payoff in terms of allowing our early ancestors to survive. You spend a chapter of your book analysing what it is to be human by looking at three elements that everyone agrees on, uh, the stone axe, fire, and language. Can you talk about why you think these three are really important and also maybe choose one to demonstrate your ideas? Those three elements, the, uh, the, the stone axe, the hand axe, uh, they're no longer made anymore, but for a million, over a million years, they were one of the dominant types of tool uh, across uh, uh, much of the inhabited world of the time. Sorry to interrupt you there, but as an archaeologist, have you ever tried to make a hand axe? Oh yes, I have. You need a lot of uh, need a lot of patience. Okay, uh, how easy is it, or how hard is it? Oh, it's very hard. It's very hard. I mean, you can make something that approximates to a hand axe. You can do that quite quickly. But when you try and do uh, uh, try and make a hand axe in a kind of symmetrical way, or using some of the flaking techniques, and this is flaking stone using either another stone or a piece of antler or a piece of wood to detach tiny little flakes and so on, altering the design of it so that it looks much more symmetrical, is thinner, it fits the hand, all these sorts of things. That's the difficult part. You can make something that is pear-shaped. Uh, I'm particularly good at those, uh, but uh, but I'm certainly not a good flint napper. And a good flint napper will take quite a long time to do that. Back half a million years ago, when these things were very common, you were probably taking 10 or 12 years to learn how to make these to a, to a very proficient level so that you could then knock one of these out in uh, 10 to 15 minutes. Sorry to interrupt you there. I couldn't resist asking you uh, that uh, that question. I just found it. I just found the skill involved in in I guess making something like that uh, fascinating. It's a very it's a very good question, and certainly it's a it's a high skill base uh, and one that we've all lost. But to get back to those um, three elements, so you've got these stone hand axes, these little pear shaped 
are hand axes, which are, are, are very multi-purpose. They're good for cutting, they're good for scraping, they're good for pounding. I think they're also probably good for impressing other hominins, whether because we, we don't know who made them. They could have been made by uh, males and females. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's it very likely that the more symmetrical they are, the more you're impressing the other sex with your kind of skills ability. So, you know, follow me uh, or mate with me. I'm, I'm really good at making these things uh, starts to come into play. So those objects are, are very interesting. There's a long persistence of tradition. Uh, but we've got those. So these are highly skillful, uh, techno technologically competent, although not particularly complex uh, ancestors. Uh, the other two elements uh, would be um, language. And language, of course, changes the game fundamentally. Uh, it would change, for example, the, the teaching of how to make these hand axes. You would no longer have to do it by imitation. You could now do it by instruction. And the third element of uh, fire uh, is just so interesting. Fire used to be talked about a lot in archaeology, but then it dropped out. And uh, John Gowlett uh, on the project was really pushing fire as something that was a big innovation. Uh, because fire uh, and the, the knowledge of how to make fire is, a, again, a great game changer. It's a great game changer, just as the standardization and the replication of stone tools, uh, the acquisition of language uh, in some form as we know it to be able to store and transfer information, that's important. But then fire itself as something that lengthens the day for our ancestors, that they're no longer dependent as chimps and gorillas are upon the um, upon the sun coming up, but they can now uh, extend uh, the length of the day into the night uh, so they can use that time to swap information, to talk about what they're going to do uh, in the future. All these three elements seem to come together and together they kind of start to change the game in significant ways. And one of the things we looked at in the project in which we were very interested in was when did this occur? And we focused in on this period around about half a million years ago. Uh, and we focused in on that for good reasons, not because this is a moment when there's a big change in the archaeology, in the artifacts, far from it. In fact, nothing seems to change, particularly at that time. They're still making these hand axes, these pear-shaped tools. You don't suddenly find half a million years ago art for the first time or burials or something like that. No, it, it seems to be business as normal. but one thing really does change, and that's the size of the brains. Suddenly, there's one of those hockey stick graph moments when the graph has been increasing slowly, and then around about half a million years ago, it starts to accelerate. And it starts to accelerate from about 900 cubic centimeters up towards our current 1500. So it puts on a, a lot of growth brains become much larger. And if the social brain hypothesis is correct, then at this time, 
community sizes were getting larger and the number of people that our ancestors were interacting with in their little personal networks was also getting larger. And this had us scratching our heads for a bit as to, well, if they're not uh, using these bigger brains to make better technology immediately, what are they using the brains for? And then the penny dropped and we felt, well, actually, this starts to prove our um, hypothesis that it was social lives that drove the development of the brain, uh, that th these larger groupings are pushing forward to getting larger uh, brains, uh, that it wasn't that large brains aren't linked uh, necessarily to sort of, you know, uh, inventing ever more complicated technologies. You just have to look at our brains. Uh, over the last 200 years, the brains have stayed the same, but the technology has gone, you know, from the horse-drawn car to the space shuttle. I mean, it's just uh, uh, grown exponentially. And so what we felt was that those large brains must be linked in to uh, sustaining social life. And they're linked into building stronger bonds, to using emotions in different ways to build stronger ties between people and ramping up, uh, amplifying, increasing the, the intensity of social life in a non-artifactual way. We do it using things. We do it by bringing out our smartphones, by sending photographs, by talking to people, uh, uh, and by storing things in all the memory banks that we have uh, of the artifacts that we surround ourselves with and from which we get great comfort as well as information. Our ancestors half a million years ago did this on emotion and ramping up those sorts of, of, uh, uh, of aspects and, and channeling those in ways that would allow these larger communities to emerge and laying thereby the foundations for where we are today. Can we return for a moment to an idea that you mentioned earlier, which was the building of societies from the bottom up and what impact this had or this idea had on your research? I think, you know, from the social brain perspective and from the archaeological perspective, what we had to do, that's John and Robin and myself, what we had to do was kind of change our mindset uh, towards the sorts of questions to which we believed we could get an answer. And that was the key for us in the social brain project. No longer could we say, well, you know, brains don't survive, society doesn't survive, because the artifacts that denote society don't survive. We had to say, no, that's not the way to do it. What we need to do is, is approach the problem as though we were studying chimpanzees and see how society is created from the bottom up rather than received from the top down. And from the bottom up, society for chimpanzees and primates is created, you know, by fingertips. It's created by grooming and by grooming those relationships into hierarchies and confirming and getting satisfaction from that and getting those endorphin buzzes just by physical contact. And this is how uh, the wide variety of relationships and social bonds that uh, that, that underpin that uh, comes into being. And we had as archaeologists to change our thinking and, and think of society in those ways 
rather than think of it as something on a piece of paper in a parliament and handed down from the top to the citizens below. Uh, this was very much citizen science, creating society from the grassroots up and seeing it in that sort of way. And it gives us a very different vision of what a society might look like uh, in the old Stone Age. Over the course of your research and your work on this topic, where did your thinking change or develop the most? It was in this particular period, this key period where we get fire, uh, where we make the argument for language, because language is now needed in order to be able to uh, find another way other than the fingertip uh, to be able to to uh, keep these groups together. Uh, primates are limited uh, partly in the size of their communities by the means at their disposal for actually confirming and creating those social communities. And, and that's by grooming each other with their fingertips. And uh, when, when primates are grooming, they're actually, it's a very pleasurable experience for them. Well, it still is for humans, let's face it, uh, but it releases these opiates and endorphins. It gives, it gives you these chemical rushes which reward uh, you for actually being social. But when those numbers become larger, there just aren't enough hours in the day to get round everyone and have, have a good uh, fingertip grooming. Uh, you'd end up very happy, but you'd end up very hungry. You've also got to feed yourself. These, remember, are hunters and gatherers. They're not people who can go down to the local corner store and, and quickly do the shopping and then get back for a bit of grooming. No, these are, these are people who have to be very careful with their budget of time that they have over the day for moving, for resting, for acquiring food, and also for social life. Clive, where has your work received the most interesting criticisms? Oh, from other archaeologists, I think, uh, but also from neuroscientists in saying, well, you know, hold on a moment, brain size is all very well, but what about the structure of the brain? Uh, to which I have no answer at the moment, because yes, the structure of the brain is hugely important. But to some extent, I'm looking to the neuroscientists to join in in the discussion and to tell us more. I suppose the biggest critiques do come from the archaeologists, who of course say, well, you know, what you see is what you get. Uh, or more importantly, what you see is what there was. And if things don't survive, uh, they weren't making them or, or they didn't preserve because they were made out of wood or, or uh, perishable materials. And those criticisms are, are always difficult to counter. But in a way, they're the criticisms which have always held back the subject and which gave us these uh, ancestors with enormous brains, but no social life. So we only, got, we only get a, a partial picture of those uh, of those ancestors so what uh, what uh, i'm arguing and, and and what we argue on the project is that we have to be a bit bolder as archaeologists we mustn't be limited necessarily by the evidence that we must consider the possibilities of what our ancestors needed uh, to survive uh, and to lay those foundations for us in the present then how do you avoid making too big a step, how a too bigger inference, and then coming under a criticism for that? 
there's always the problem in archaeology of kind of committing a just so story, you know, that uh, I think it was this way, therefore it must have been. We can get round that uh, in the um, uh, in in the in the kind of study that we devised and planned for the social brain project, which was that this isn't going to be answered by the archaeology alone. It has to be answered by comparisons on an evolutionary time scale with the other animals which have made that journey, and in particular with our closest relatives, the chimps, the monkeys, and whatever. And we can learn from them as much as we can learn from our ancestors and what they left behind. So that it's inconceivable that we can think about our ancestors and not see them as emotional social creatures who had problems of dealing with uh, numbers and of getting round and reinforcing and reaffirming all those social bonds that bind. And we have to put that into our picture and into our understanding of uh, how their worlds worked. Uh, and then we have to take the challenge and say, well, yes, they haven't left behind the smartphones half a million years ago for us to be able to pick up and see who they were messaging and, uh, and see what their conversations were recording. None of that survives, but we have to work out other ways uh, in which to get at that information. And there, the archaeology actually starts to yield up some some returns by looking at the at the at the way that they organised their living spaces, uh, at the way that they um, were, were using landscapes. How large were those landscapes? How many other hominins uh, ancestors rather that they could fit into those landscapes, and also the aesthetic appeal of artifacts that give an emotional um, re return for selecting particular types of raw materials based on what they look like, how they feel, or how they smell, how they taste, and so on. All of this now needs to be built in so that we have a very different uh, view of our ancestors than the ones who just grunted a bit and went out and hit a mammoth over the head for dinner. Uh, that we have to put that we have to put to one side, and we have to see our ancestors as really, you know, much more complicated. They're not us, but they're much more complicated, and they're wrestling though with the same sorts of problems that we had, which is how to construct a social world out of the materials and the other people that already inhabit it. Yeah, when it comes to defining what is human and what is not. Do we, in a sense, keep moving the goalposts or, or changing the definition? Absolutely, all the time we do. I mean, you know, we're 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 wonderful. We're wonderful at fixing the uh, the limits to the human club. You know, who gets in and who gets out. And and uh, so, for example, Neanderthal. If we, you know, Neanderthal, we all think now that Neanderthals uh, uh, speak. Um, uh, so uh, so that's uh, so that would get them into the club, and then someone says, "Oh no, they could speak, but they they, they didn't have symbols, and, or they didn't have language exactly as we know it." So the bar gets raised again, and the poor old Neanderthals fall under it. All of that, I think, is nonsense. We've we've got to be much more inclusive and much broader in terms of understanding uh, what it is to be human. It's a very Victorian way of going around the world that everyone everyone has their place and they know it, uh, and there's a kind of ladder 
which you um, which uh, human history shows was climbed up. And of course, who's sitting at the top of the ladder? People like you and me. Uh, and who's at the bottom? People like Neanderthals and so on. Uh, all of that has to be scrapped. And we have to have a much more flexible idea of what it is to be human. And so what we're saying in the social brain is that to be human is to solve some of these key issues of, of how you relate to other people. And uh, what we're looking at is how at certain times those um, challenges actually led to smaller societies and then evolution steps in and ways were developed to allow those societies to increase and to allow the brains to increase as well, so that it becomes that sort of process rather than looking at the record and saying, those ones are allowed in for dinner today and those ones are going to have to wait a long, long time before we uh, let them through the door and admit that they might be human. Uh, as someone with your training and, and, and expertise and the perspective of an archaeologist, what is it about the way that you see the world that you wish others could see? I wish that people could get this sense of a deep, deep history. That uh, to understand where we are today does require a knowledge of where we've come from, not just since the Tudors and Stuarts, not just since the Romans, not just since the origins of agriculture 10,000 years ago, but way back when the really important stuff happened, when we walked upright, when our brains began to grow because our societies were growing, when we started to speak, when we started to kindle fire and sat round it and started to swap stories and pass on information. Clive, it's, it has been an absolute pleasure to be able to talk to you about your book today. Thank you very much for uh, giving me the time. Thank you, Craig. Today, I have been speaking to Clive Gamble, Professor of Archaeology at the University of Southampton and President of the Royal Anthropological Institute in London, about his new book, Thinking Big, How the Evolution of Social Life Shaped the Human Mind. My name's Craig Barfoot, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.